with me, please, this evening to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 25. As we come to this passage tonight, we come to our last sermon on the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, I'll begin reading at verse 31, and I will read through to the end of the chapter. Let us hear God's word from Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Amen for God's word and let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, again, we bless you, the great God, our creator, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you sent forth in the beginning your spirit and created Adam and Eve from the dust of the earth. So Lord, send forth that spirit tonight to give us life, to revive us, to restore us, to teach us, to create within us, zeal for these kinds of works and this service to you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us the breath of life and make us truly alive. Do these things as we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, Matthew, excuse me, don't worry, it didn't get crazy down there. All right, let's try this again. Matthew chapters 23 and 24, 25, and 26, they have read somewhat like a courtroom scene almost. 
You have Jesus presenting evidence to the religious leaders there and laying down on them a negative verdict for how they have led Israel. You have Jesus announcing the consequences of the judgment that will come upon the city and upon his own people. And now you have Jesus as judge announcing what the end of the age will be like, what the verdict will be and what the sentence will be when he comes again. These key chapters of Matthew have read for us like some kind of courtroom drama. And as we've worked our way through these chapters, as we've seen these different descriptions of Israel's state and these warnings of what is coming in the future, we come now to this final vision where God reveals for us the final judgment that will take place at the end of human history. And it's been, we've led up to this vision by these parables that express this theme of being ready for Jesus' return. And now that theme culminates in this vision of judgment. Be ready, he says. And now he tells us, when I appear, here's what will happen. And throughout Matthew, Jesus has appealed to this image of Daniel 7. We've referred to it a few times, this vision of the Son of Man that comes into the heavenly throne room and receives this authority to rule and judge. Well, this passage depicts him in that role as the judge exercising authority over the nations. And let's just say at the outset, that's, that's good news. It should be sobering news. On a certain day, it will be bad news. But for those who long for justice, for oppression to be put down, for murder and wars and other evils to cease, for God to come as judge and to right those wrongs and exercise authority is a good thing. So as Daniel promised that one day the Ancient of Days would do, that the Son of Man would do, now Jesus describes himself in that role. Sitting on the throne, executing judgment, you t- doing the divine function, and thus sharing in the divine identity, embodying the kingdom, that is the rule of God in his person. Now, as we saw in the previous parables, this vision will again express a division between those who are ready and those who are not ready. Both groups will be consigned to separate eternal destinies. A little more emphasis on the eternal nature of those destinies in this vision. Unlike the previous parables, this vision will give us more attention to the specific conduct that shows whether people are ready or not. For Jesus' return. So as we had to do in the previous parables, we had to try to unpack that language. What does it mean to be a faithful steward? What does it mean to watch? What does it mean to be ready? Here Jesus will get very specific. These are the deeds that show advanced preparation and that express themselves in a lifetime of watchfulness for the Lord's return. So let's make our way then through this final vision of Matthew 25. First, you have the setting of judgment. In verses 31 through 33, verse 31 opens with this vision of the Son of Man coming in his glory and all the angels with him. If the previous paragraphs were parables, this one sounds more what we call apocalyptic. It's like the book of Revelation or some of those chapters in the Old Testament prophets. It's this grand vision of all human history being overseen by the judge and him breaking into that history 
to execute his judgment. The Son of Man comes and the angels are with him and he sits on this glorious throne. Again, right out of the Old Testament, Daniel 7 in particular. And as Jesus sits on this throne, we read in verse 32 that all the nations are gathered before him so that he can separate the sheep from the goats. This is a universal judgment. This isn't just Jesus coming and asking the disciples to give an account. This is all nations being gathered before him. And thus, when we speak of the end times, we tend to describe the last day as a day of general judgment. And in some mindsets, there's this scheme in which Christians are removed from the earth for a period of time. And then there's a judgment executed, say, on just unbelievers. But if we read Matthew, we see Jesus warning The destruction is coming of Jerusalem, and then on an unknown day, I will come. And when I come, these are the things that will happen. All the nations will be gathered, and then I will execute my judgment between those who are righteous and those who are not. So we anticipate one day at any time a general judgment when God appears again, and the Son of Man sits on that throne. And when he sits on that throne, we read that he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Again, language that may flow from the Old Testament as so much of the language of these chapters does. Ezekiel 34, 17. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another. And between rams and goats. Now, why would you have to make a separation like this? Because, so the sources tell us, both animals could be pastured in mixed flocks in the ancient world. Might still be the case in some areas of animal husbandry these days. Sheep and goats might be in the same area. And so the wise shepherd at times would have to separate them depending on which animal he needed. This reminds us of the earlier parables, the wheat and the weeds, two groups living together, different kinds of people, but living together, indistinguishable for a season, but then being distinguished in the end. That is the setting in which this vision plays out. Now let's look first at the result of judgment. Jesus leads as he describes each group. He tells us exactly what will happen to those groups. So in verse 34, Jesus speaks to those on his right hand, the sheep, and he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So we have this first result of judgment, which is favorable here in verse 34. We'll be given the opposite result in verse 41, and then a summary of both in the last verse of the passage, verse 46. But the righteous inherit the kingdom prepared for them since the creation of the world. Now that language may remind you of Ephesians chapter 1. There the language before the creation or before the foundation of the world is used with reference to predestination, God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In the original language, the two phrases are slightly different, so I think you may have a different reference here then. In Matthew 25, since Jesus says the kingdom has been prepared since the creation of the world, I wonder 
if this is a reference to the governing of creation, the ruling over creation that God intended for humans, but was compromised by the fall. What did God say there to Adam? The thorns and thistles are going to grow. The creation is going to fight against you now. So as once you were told, all right, exercise dominion over the earth, now it's going to fight against you. You've still got a task to do as humans, make God's world a good place, but it's going to fight against you. But one day when he comes, that curse is going to be removed. And God's people can execute that, that authority, that stewardship, that cultivation over God's world that was intended for them from the beginning, doing it with God as they do it like God. And so Jesus says, those who are righteous, those who survive this judgment, they'll come into this new creation, this full manifestation of the kingdom, and they'll govern with me sitting on thrones, as we read in other passages. Now notice also this, by the way. Jesus says, come, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared. In verse 46, their reward is described as eternal life. And sometimes we tend to think of those differently. Eternal life, that sounds like heaven, going to heaven when you die. And there are passages that speak of that. To be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. But we also have this language described here in this chapter of a kingdom that is coming, a rule in a new creation. And notice then that this vision in particular uses both phrases to refer to the same reality. To have eternal life is to inhabit God's kingdom. The eternal life and reward to which God's people look forward is this ruling and reigning with God in the new creation. Matthew does it right here in this passage. John likes to do this whenever he cites some of the passages from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't do that a lot. But sometimes when John cites a passage from the first three Gospels, they may use the language of kingdom, and John will use the language of eternal life. He is figuring out exactly what Jesus is saying and say to be in God's kingdom, to participate in his rule, is to have eternal life life so this first group inherits that so that's the result of judgment all right what then are the criterion of judgment this is probably the part of this passage that raises the most questions for us because the king says all right come inherit the kingdom and here's why i was hungry and you gave me something to eat I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Why do they pass the final judgment? Because essentially they have done deeds and you get the impression they've, their life has been characterized by doing deeds that keep other people alive. And that's obvious from some of the language, you know, hungry, thirsty, you got to have food and water to live. A stranger and you invited me in being protected from the elements, clothing people so they're not exposed and thus dying. Perhaps you could even see they're enabling them to live a life uh, that's fruitful. The prison one may not seem like keeping them alive, but again, think ancient prisons where they did not provide the basic necessities. Family or friends would often have to bring them. So to visit people in prison would be to bring them the necessities of life. Jesus says, my people, the righteous, those who inherit the kingdom, are marked by performing these deeds of mercy. 
Now, maybe that language makes us a little uncomfortable. Why? Because we appreciate the gospel of grace and the great truths of justification by faith, some of the things we've emphasized as we've made our way through Romans. And to come to a passage that seems to not refer to any of those realities and instead focus so much on works may make us feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, I still feel it sometimes when I read the book of James. I was reading it the other day, and I'm like, okay, this is Jesus's brother. And sometimes you just feel like you're reading, maybe it's like overlapping with the Old Testament. You just think there'd be a little bit more in there from someone who knew Jesus so well. I understand the tension, but I think having said that, I think as Protestants, as those who appreciate the gospel of grace, I wonder if sometimes we just dichotomize faith and works too much, more than the Bible ever intended for us to do. I mean, think, how does Jesus describe his disciples in the book of Matthew? He describes them as those who do the will of my Father. In chapter 16, he says, The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they have done. How do we put these two pieces of the puzzle together? I spoke to this just recently on a Sunday morning, so I'll be brief again. Quite simply, those who believe in their hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. Think of that, that simple confession there in Romans 10.9. They believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. What is it that they confess with their mouth? That Jesus is Lord. They swear allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Those who believe swear allegiance. So faith and deeds in the Bible are vitally connected. And sometimes the Bible chooses simply to describe the Christian life as a whole. It it just zooms out and speaks of God's people in terms of their faith and their works. Sometimes it may speak of one and it's assuming the other. So when this passage speaks of works, it assumes faith. When passages speak of faith, they assume works. What we want the Bible to do is we want it in every passage to always tell us, okay, now what order do they come in? Which one is primary? But the Bible doesn't always do that. I think it answers that question, but it doesn't always speak that cleanly in every passage. And so when we come to a passage like this, we should simply understand these are the good deeds that express a genuine saving faith. That's what James 2 is getting at. So in other words, Jesus is putting his finger on an application here that we dare not forget. So we don't want to downplay the language of works, just say, okay, now, of course, we know we believe in salvation by faith. Of course we do. And so here Jesus would emphasize the vital, the essential works, which marks the righteous who inherit his heavenly kingdom. So we can come to this passage and appreciate what he's saying. It's Jesus. Of course the gospel isn't under threat from Jesus himself. We can appreciate his words here. Now, What further complicates matters is Jesus, as he describes these good works, he says that the disciples have done these deeds to him, and the doers of the deeds seem unaware of this. Now again, this is something that Jesus has prepared us for throughout Matthew's gospel. In chapter 10, verse 40, he says, Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me and anyone who welcomes me 
welcomes the one who sent me. You hear the connection he makes between disciples, Jesus, and the Father? In 18.5, he says, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. To welcome a disciple and to do a good deed to a disciple is to welcome and do the good deed to Christ. There is a vital union that exists between Christ and his people. Now, that's a, that's a doctrine we're very familiar with from Paul. Well, where do we think he got it from? He got it from Jesus himself, who implied these things with language like this. Christ and his people exist in an inseparable union. Thus, to do good deeds to a fellow disciple is to do it to Christ, to serve him. If you serve others, you are serving Christ. And so these acts of charity, are an essential expression of the Christian faith. And when we do them to others, we are doing them to Christ. And here's the last question we should ask as we focus on the good works. Should we do these only for fellow disciples? Well, the phrase in verse 40, one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, that is used with reference to disciples in some places in Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus says, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple? In 18.6, Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, that is, those who believe in me, to stumble. So you can see that Jesus uses this expression of the little ones and the least of these as a way to describe disciples. However, I would keep in mind the interpretation our Savior gives us of Leviticus 19.18 in the Sermon on the Mount. Leviticus 19.18 is the command that says, love your neighbor. And the way some ancient interpreters read that, they read that to say, well, who is my neighbor? That would be my fellow Jews. I love my fellow people. I love God's people. That's all that command is telling me to do. But as Jesus says in Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Even pagans do that. So be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can see very strongly that to restrict deeds of charity and mercy to fellow Christians only or those who are trustworthy, would go very strongly against the grain of what Jesus says when it comes to how we show our love as an imitation of our Father in heaven. So I would not confine acts of charity to God's people only. Now, I think when we read a passage like this and we think of doing acts of mercy, acts of charity, there can be a lot of things in us that, that, that push back against us. We, we may think of people we know that have been irresponsible. We may think of the way you know, charity is overseen by government and other things. There can be a lot that just causes us to, to bristle at this. I would just put before you the advice of a, of a father in the faith, Robert Murray McShane, a reformed pastor, who pastored in Dundee, Scotland. 
And Dundee was an urban area. So maybe when you think of Scotland, you think of the beautiful green rolling hills. No, Dundee was urban. And being an urban area, it had urban needs. And in a sermon on being Christ-like and in discussing giving like Christ, he addressed the following objections that people might make to giving charitably. And Robert Murray McShane, again, you know, just venerable father in the faith and the Reformed faith, said, okay, here's an objection you might say. My money is my own. And he answered, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forces it from me. Objection two, the poor are undeserving. McShane says, Christ might have said the same thing. Father, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He, came, he gave his blood to the undeserving. In objection three, the poor may abuse it. And again, answer, Christ might have said the same. Yes, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse to sin more, yet he gave his own blood. I think when we see advice like that from a previous generation, that it just it's a good encouragement to us. Just be, beware of the excuses that pop up in our hearts. Beware of the limitations and the conditions we might want to put on giving and serving others. One commentator writes, As far as the righteous are concerned, they were simply doing an act of kindness to a fellow human being in need. It was, this was not an expression of their attitude to Jesus. But whether they knew it or not, the people they helped were associated with Jesus to such an extent that they could set, be said to be Jesus. And I think, by the way, let that encourage you, because sometimes when we think about giving to the poor, it's so overwhelming, it's a drop in the bucket, it will never make a difference. This commentator says, as far as they knew, they were doing a simple act of kindness, and God valued that. So let us be such people. As Proverbs 19 17 reminds us, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. So that's the criterion of judgment here. Now let's look at the negative side of judgment in verses 41 through 45. And basically you have in these words the mirror image, the exact opposite of the words that were spoken in verse 34 to the righteous. So now as this group comes before the Lord, he tells them in verse 40, the king, uh, then he will say, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He says, go away instead of come. He calls them cursed instead of blessed. He warns of eternal fire instead of kingship and a fate prepared in advance, though in this case, not specifically for you, but for the devil and his angels, whose lot the unrighteous are to share. Now again, Jesus prepared us for this earlier in Matthew, in the same chapter that some of the other verses I've already read came from. Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15. If anyone will not welcome you, or listen to your words. Leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. 
If they receive you, they receive me. But if they won't receive you, then they're not receiving me. And judgment is coming. And a far worse judgment than the judgment that befell those ancient cities. Jesus warns here of eternal fire. Now, interestingly, he says it is prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, God is sovereign over time and actions. He knows the end from the beginning. But it's interesting that Jesus himself describes hell here not as God's original intent for his creation. That hell here is designed as a place, a place of judgment for spiritual opposition. As a place to end the spiritual opposition of the devil and his angels. But what do we find, sadly, in this passage? That those who would oppose Jesus, that those who would despise Jesus, and that they would do it by despising his creation, that they will li- and his creatures, that they will likewise share in the devil's fate. And there's not a lot said here about what they've done wrong, but what they have failed to do is the right thing of serving others, of meeting needs of mercy, and taking care of God's creation. Again, the exact opposite of what we read in the first paragraph, where as people were in need, and to do it to them would be to do it to Jesus, they resisted that. And so they opposed God's creation, and in doing so, they opposed the Lord Jesus himself. And so you come to the end of the passage in verse 46, where we have these final results of judgment. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Like all the parables we've already seen, there's two possible outcomes of judgment. The Old Testament anticipated this. Daniel 12, 2 reads, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus, the Son of Man, the one whose Matthew's gospel has prepared us for by, by tracing that genealogy at the beginning from Abraham to David to Joseph there. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of uh, his father and the son of man who now exercises this ultimate sovereignty at the end of time. He's announced judgment on Jerusalem. We have that very focused judgment in Matthew 24. But now by the end of 25, he is executing judgment on all the nations. And how people respond to Jesus' representatives is a sign of their attitude to him and the basis for their reward or punishment. The righteous receive eternal life. They reign over God's new creation, whereas the unrighteous go away to eternal punishment, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So what do we take away from it? Three things simply. One, as we've seen in all of these parables, the time to prepare is now. That's the wise choice, to be prepared now. How do we do that? That's the second application. These parables have described our preparation with reference to Jesus, that we would watch for him, that we would be ready for him, that we would live for him, that we would develop the opportunities he gives. And now here, most specifically in this passage, that we would serve him indeed. 
That is the blueprint. That is the lifestyle. That is the faithful stewardship and the money management, so to speak, that God values serving him indeed. And lastly, then, the expression of that preparation, as I've already hinted at, is this life lived of deeds of love and mercy. This is how faith is expressed. This is how we show our allegiance to Jesus as Lord. On the last day, we will be justified by faith, just as we are justified now by faith. But these works evaluated will be the expression of that faith, the allegiance to Jesus as Lord, so that that faith saves on the last day. So let's pray for God's help to be able to do this as his people. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ who gave everything for us. He gave charitably and sacrificially and to those who were undeserving and needed it in a way that we could never obtain it ourselves. So Lord, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us when we don't express our faith in this way. And just give us wisdom. We we want to do right. We want to do well. We we want to give in a way that that will be of maximum benefit. So help us to be wise. Help us to to discover good ways to give and to share with others. Give us an an industry in that, that we wouldn't just be driven, uh, maybe overwhelmed with need or overwhelmed with guilt, but at the same time we wouldn't be stubborn or resistant or stingy, that we would simply be industrious in thinking of how we can give and share with others. Lord, thank you for the Spirit of God that forms uh, these attitudes in our hearts. So do that. Send us out tonight with wisdom, with with the desire to serve you, and with faith, faith to trust you, uh, that when we give in this way, it is doing it unto you. We could do these good deeds and leave it with you, not agonizing over whether we'll be okay or whether we'll have enough or whether it was the best thing that we'd simply give and trust you. So thanks for your mercy for your whole creation. Thank you for your care for your people and your kingdom. And we pray these do good then to this community. There are needs here in Roebuck and Spartanburg and beyond. Meet those needs and show mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing then in closing hymn 44, How Great Thou Art. Hymn 44, we'll sing verses 1 and 4, first and the last. Stand with me, please.